Did James just freeze? James froze up on me. But, but, Mr. Scrooge, sir, we did discuss it. It's Christmas Day. You gave me the day off. Tell me, what day is it? What day? What? Christmas Day, Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Then I hadn't missed it. The spirits must have done everything in one night. So let's have ourselves a podcast. Welcome, everybody. Merry Christmas. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 623. If you're listening to this when Christmas has passed, don't worry. This is going to be just as topical after the Yule time season as it is before, which is to say it's just the three of us flapping our gums here at the end of the year. <laughs> I'm James Lilix in Minneapolis, also known as the North Frickin' Pole. Peter Robinson is in Palo Alto, uh, where I believe uh, he's in lockdown now because there are helicopters above. their search beams stabbing the air. The, the, the cops roaming around everywhere because Sam, I'm sorry, SBF. SBF, yes. which sounds like uh, some sort of calibration for a uh, you know suntan lotion, uh, is going to be coming out at some point soon. And Rob Long is in Texas. Did I get that right, Rob? I'm, I am in Dallas. I am. That's exactly where I am. Dallas, uh, bat, Texas, where it's 14 degrees. 14 degrees, which seems is it really? wrong. Yeah, it's very cold. Mm-hmm. So we up here are wondering whether or not uh, Texas' inability to manage the grid means that the rest of us are going to start paying for it like we did last year. Somehow, anybody talking about that? Are they worried about the grid they going down? I, I came in. I came in late last night and had dinner and then went to bed. So I have no idea what the. I can't. I'm not one of those reporters, you know, where they they fly to a place, they get into a taxi on the way from the airport, they have five exchange five words with the taxi driver, they land. They get to their hotel, they're instantly saying, the sense here in Vienna yes. or wherever it is. <laughs> it's, like it's the canny, wise cab driver. Yeah. I could tell that my daughter had spent too much time on the East Coast, too much time. When I picked her up at the airport, she stowed her bag in the trunk, and then she got in the back seat of the car. And I just turned around and said, <laughs> I am not an Uber and she's just, oh, right. I mean, she was just so used I'm to just jumping to the back of a car. No. I just thought that was absolutely hilarious. I had a, a friend who spent a long time in, in, in Japan, in Tokyo, where the uh, the taxi, uh, all the taxis um, have automatic doors that open and close. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he discovered that when he came back to the States, he was so used to Ubers and Japanese taxis that he would just sit in the car mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And wait for the door and to wait. open, or where he would get in the car and just sit and wait for the door to close, or he would leave the car and leave the door open. He just said like he was completely, um, you know, at that point so costed. And um, I don't mm-hmm. know. Well, as long as he wasn't walking down, you know, staircases into random basements and expecting bullet trains to no. come by, I think he probably can adapt. So here we are at the end of the year, and uh, you know, it's strange. I look back and I think of all the things that I did and wanted to do and completed, and I thought it was a good year. Somehow that feels uh, like it's not fair or or wise to say or smart because it was in many ways not. But it's possible for one to have a great year, to be grateful for a great year at the same time, casting your eye back and saying, oh, man, oh, yeah. Ah. But I think 2022 was better than 2021, certainly better than 2020. Mm. The, the the line seems to be going upwards. Uh, we have problems and perils and the rest of us. But when didn't we? Anybody who spent a lot of time looking at old newspapers know that it's always a mess. It's always a mess. The whole bloody meat stew, the whole plant. But you guys, looking back at uh, Ricochet in 2022 and the world beyond, how do you feel about it? Peter? Uh, I am totally unprepared. I thought I was thinking Christmas, and I see now we're doing an end-of-year wrap here. Well, sort of, kind of. Nobody wants It's all the same. You know, you know yeah, I feel like mean. a failure. I feel like a failure. Two-tenths oh, of a mile... Two-tenths of a mile up the road here live people who raised their kid to lose $30 billion by the time he was 30. What did I raise my kids to do? Yeah, what did they lost? <laughs> what true. did I raise my kids to do? But you know do? what? Here's the thing. He had to move back home. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> like you got to give them, you know, it is interesting. I mean, I don't know whether we want to, like, I don't, I don't know these people. I don't. There is something about the, um, I mean, look, he's a thief, probably. That's what he is. It has really not as much to do. The crypto part is really just the amplifier, but the the, the underlying crime is something that we've seen many people do. Um, But what's interesting about it is that he, 
and I, I don't want to turn this into a think piece, but it is kind of. They've um, a son of extraordinary privilege, the hyphenated last name, you know, all sorts of things that are triggering to me, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the what I the the sort of like out, outrageously progressive politics coupled with this kind of uh, crypto greed, and then underlying it is, is a probably this delusional justification of what he did, and I'm sure we'll hear more and more about it. I don't think he's going to come out and say, "Yeah, I shouldn't have shouldn't have stolen money from people and used it to pay off my debts." No, all truism, he, was a, all truism, a new form of ethical yeah, yes, yes, altruism. Yes. It's like, like these, like, like extremely privileged white progressives, and I hate to be quite so on the nose, but I really think it's important. Um, I just had this an, an incredibly rich, deep, uh, multi-hued vocabulary for describing their crime. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of like, uh, it's astonishing. It's as if, as if his entire, you know, up, upbringing and education was designed to sort of teach him one, how to, how to master the technology and then B, how to also master the denial and the alibi okay but how how technically sophisticated do you have to be when you are in a culture that has the following premise you can make up money go ahead make up some (laughs) make up money call it what you want and then you can give it to these people who think it has the value because you said that it did or you can do something with it behind the scenes and nobody really knows because you made up the money you also made up this other money and the other money's made up all the money's made up but it's on the blockchain how technically sophisticated do you have to be to actually do something like that when you're living in a culture that says that starts with a premise we can make up money? Well, you know, we, there's a there's a ricochet ricochet productions podcast that answers all these questions, James. And if you yeah, are listening at home and questions. you ha- and you have these questions, you there's a ricochet uh, a podcast that has all of these uh, all these uh, answers all of these questions. Right, but it goes to his brilliance. Is he brilliant? Was he was he some techno savant, or was he just some schlub who knew how to say the right <laughs> words to the right people? I think it's the okay. Language. So, I, I I have encounter. I have I have two questions of my own, and a third that the kids are asking. I'll go through this fast. But since it's all happening in our own neighborhood, mm-hmm. the kids are asking. So they said, "Well, what's what did he do wrong?" And I said, "Well, there." The crypto thing is really complicated, and I'll come to that in a moment. That's where my two questions lie. But what he did wrong was just old. If this is alleged, I am conscious that I'm talking about people who don't right. live that far from me. This is alleged. If he did what is in the newspapers, he had an exchange where people made effectively deposits, and then he had an investing operation that was his, and he moved money from the deposits to the investing operation. And my son looks at me and says, yeah, but how is that any different from the Stanford Federal Credit Union investing the money that you deposit? And of course, it does so with my knowledge and permission, whereas SBF was doing so without the knowledge and permission of his customers. And your son, And to my benefit, and to my benefit, that's correct. I get interest payments. But it it gets to this question so the two questions I have that I think are big and fascinating, and somebody, is it going to be Michael Lewis, who apparently was already tracking this guy before the trouble started? I don't know. Somebody's going to get into this. Question number one is the nature of money. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you said, James. How can we live in a society where you get to make up your own currency? And then you think, well, wait a minute, the federal government makes up its currency. There's nothing behind that except the say-so of the federal government. Right, but there's that whole, that, but the say so, and the history of it, and the full faith and credit, etc. I understand fiat currency is in the same sort of general thing, but but the but the the dollar has a track record and an yeah, establishment yeah, yeah. and an institution behind it. Well, that is maybe a little less liberty give it than some guy in the Bahamas saying, "I'm going to name my new coin after the moon." Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can I can I can I just like a, a small a small defense? Okay, but I, I, okay, you got that. A small defense of crypto, just a small one, which is the idea behind it was that it was going to be a, a stable currency that everybody agreed on the value was going to be easily convertible, and the idea of it really was it's going to be this enormous ledger, so you never had to keep any record. You know, all the records. Sorry, all the records are kept. You you know, it, it, it 
it follows not just currency uh, uh, money exchanges but thing exchanges too um and it what it, what it became was a speculative tulip bubble based on nothing and then i think sam bankman freed again all this stuff is alleged well, he has pled guilty to some mm-hmm. stuff um i th- some people have i think uh what he did was what crypto then became was because it was such a bubble it became a very easy way to identify credulous people of a speculative mindset and Mm -hmm. all of those people were easy those are the easiest people to fleece you know as the old con men always say you cannot con an honest man you can't con somebody who thinks well wait a minute this seems a little too good to be true so you you got them all together they use a direct mail assembly that could not be bettered and they weren't really going to look into anything and then you created a separate sort of hedge fund um, um, investment vehicle that you speculated on. And when those debts came came due, you just simply went and raided the piggy ba- other people's piggy banks. That it's like, it, and because it's crypto, and because it was the middle of a bubble, um, all of those okay. numbers are amplified. Add zeros to that's everything. your defense. But that was your the- that was your small defense of crypto. <laughs> well, no, my, my my defense of it is that it actually. Um, that 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 these things have to fail first like web 1.0 and then they come back the problem with crypto is that nobody wants you, you can't use it at the 7-eleven you can't use it so the dollar the value of the dollar is set by really two things one is the federal reserve and the united states government sort of that apparatus but mostly the value of a dollar is set at a one trillion transactions every day by people buying something for a dollar, whether they're buying it here or they're buying it, a, 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 you know, wire transfers, that is the reassurance that this thing is useful and liquid and fungible and everyone is universally accepted. Until crypto has that, it will always be a an eccentric weirdo thing okay. for nerds and for his charlatans. Yep. Okay. I'm going to grant everything you said, including the intriguing bit, which was once he had this up and going. It was like dropping blood into the water. And every person who liked to play showed up. Okay, here comes my final question. I'll set it up by going back to 2008. We have a financial crisis. One reason that the financial centers of the world froze was that all of a sudden, everybody realized all at once when I say everybody, I mean all the major commercial banks in the world, in the Western world, recognized all at once that they really didn't know how much of the collateralized mortgage obligations they were holding, how much of the debt they were holding was right. garbage. They right. didn't know the value of their own debt. And Alan Greenspan, who started his career as an acolyte to Ayn Rand. That's how much of a libertarian he was. As chairman of the Fed, he was one of the chief defenders of the free market. And he testified before Congress, paraphrase, I'm not quoting him, but he testified before Congress that events had shaken his faith in the free market. Mine too! These people had every incentive to understand the debt they they themselves were holding, that the the cheapest, the lowest salary anybody at Morgan was making in those days was $600,000. Go downstairs and check the obligations. See, see if, okay, it, it didn't happen. And now what do we have? This kid, and he's still only 30, and the money was gushing in when he was 27 and 28 and 29, holds investments from some of the most sophisticated players in Silicon Valley. If this is true, but it's been in print, that Andreessen Horowitz, one of the big sophisticated venture funds in this town, put money in. The Sequoia Partners put money in. Where was the due diligence? Where was where was the double checking? You had every reason to double check that an operation run by a 27-year-old or a 28-year-old that was brand new, that was dealing in a currency in currencies, some of which he had just made up. Right. And, uh, as far as I can tell, no due diligence took place. Uh, total I, collapse of, of what you'd expect free market incentives to produce. I have good news for you, Peter. Good. It's uh, three pieces of good news. One is um, even the smartest people in the world are stupid sometimes. That's right? good news? 
yes, because it means that um, it means that the world still works the way the world works. That there are people right. who figured everything out, right? No, no one doubts uh, Elon. No one doubts Elon Musk is a genius, but he is a blundering horribly at Twitter. No one doubts, by the way. I mean, I use the same same example all the time that Howard Hughes was a genius. Howard Hughes invented all these things. Right. He was a movie maker and an aeronautical whatever engineer and all these things. Um, and yet he ended his life in a you know in a hotel tower, walking mumbling with, to himself, walking with in, eight inch fingernails, yes, with the Kleenex boxes on his shoes, right? Um, so sometimes <laughs> the smartest people can behave like idiots. Um, the bubble mentality that existed around crypto also involves this kind of crazy obsession with the its uh, uh, its past regulation. It's not being regulated. There's no federal government in, in you know in interference. This is free. This is sort of pure libertarianism, which is absolutely fine. In which case, you probably make a fetish out of the fact that his audit his financials weren't audited, or there was no CFO that you could call, or that they weren't filing the reports they need to file, or all those things. You could that, that's all, that's that's a that's a feature, not a bug. It fit the story, right? Okay, fit the story. The final piece of good news is they're going to lose all of their money, and they richly deserve to. That's how capitalism works. You, you if you're dumb with it, you'll lose it. As opposed to 2008, when the one thing we were, um, I think we were cheated out of, uh, and I mean this almost literally, I I was cheated out of seeing very rich, formerly rich, very arrogant investment bankers, people who thought they had it all figured out, and I was cheated out of seeing them selling apples on the street. And I think that if I, I don't think they did anything, I mean, I don't think that I think in, in this case, there is illegality that will be punished. But in that case, I don't think there's anything illegal about it. They were they took foolish risks and then they were bailed out. And um, I wanted to see them selling apples on the street. The, the, the absolute destitute, the, the idea that you can go from from riches to rags, and I mean, rags, I don't mean just, well, you know, I got to pay my lawyer's fees. No, to you living in a very different circumstances than you lived before. Um, that is the great, that's the great uh, risk hedge of capitalism. And if we rob ourselves of that, um, which I don't think it, it, people who invested in SBF are going to lose all their money and they're not going to get it back. And that's how it works. Boo hoo hoo. One of the lines that will probably strike modern generations as ridiculous comes at the end of Titanic, when Rose is describing what happened to uh, the guy who, the rich guy, remember, who was chasing her all around the boat, uh, the one that she was supposed to marry, the one who doesn't see her in the deck of the, deck oh, of right. California or the Carpathia, can't remember. Uh, she says offhandedly at the end of his story that uh, he lost everything in the crash of 29 and put a bullet in his head. And kids today may say, well, why did he do that? What, I, what, right. uh, Who stole wasn't there, it? Did, wasn't there a bailout? I mean, what do, what do you mean he put a bullet in his head because he lost it in the crash? You're right, Rob. I mean, people lost everything. They lost their their, their Gatsby lives evaporated, and now it doesn't happen because we don't like that. But you're 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 correct that there are stupid people, but there are also people who have a new variety of stupidity because it's their fascination with disruption. This is the idea that we're all taught to believe, right? This is, a, this is it's going to disrupt the car industry. It's going to disrupt the hotel. It's going to disrupt the paper <laughs> cup industry. We are going to disrupt the toothpick industry start to finish. And everybody piles onto this and puts a lot of money into it because they believe that this, you know breaking things just shatters the old paradigms and new things emerge and it's great, but it doesn't. Generally, it doesn't. What the disruption usually accomplishes, maybe sometimes it's good. You learn new things about what you can do with old industries. But there's this sort of inbred post-60s progressive idea that disruption itself is a virtue. And all of these people, I'm sure, have been marinating in a culture that celebrates disruption of old paradigms because it shows that the establishment and the man and all those old, old things have got to go. So if there wasn't this sort of pre-existing condition of, of celebrating disruption for its own sake, you wouldn't have an awful lot of other smart people piling into this because they thought, oh, I'm going to be praised for being a disruptor. I'm a disruptor now. That sounds like something out of an animated children's cartoon with, you know, with robots that turn into something else. Anyway, Peter, you had a response to Rob's... Uh... Well, I just wanted to let you know, James, let you in on something. The real reason... Rob wanted to see these Wall Street Titans out on 
Madison Avenue and Lexington. Wherever. Yeah, the Lex, Lex, Lexington Avenue's subway stops selling apples. And the reason I wanted to as well was that Rob and I both applied for Wall Street jobs as we were leaving college. <laughs> and right. they turned us down cold. We yeah. wanted to see those bastards wearing barrels. Well, I mean, look, I think Didn't that's happen. the, you can't, you know, the, um, my, my, one of my favorite financial writers and a very nice guy, James Grant, always says, people forget uh, that you, you know, the trick when you're investing isn't to sell high. It's also that you must buy low. And the buying low part, people always forget about because, but that's the re that's the regulatory function. He actually posited this brilliant thing. He said we should just uh, after two thousand eight, he said we should just remove all. There should be no financial regulations, really. <laughs> we, we don't need all these audits. We don't need any of this stuff, um, uh, banking things. What we need is if you work at a if you're at a financial institution that makes use of you know essentially a federal information highway so that if you're part of the international banking transferring thing if you're in any way associated with it, or you, if you're part of the federal reserve system whatever you are right then in order to be part of the club you need to every employee at a certain level so it could be you know you know the first thousand of the top thousand employees top two thousand whatever they pledge 99.99 percent of their liquidated net worth towards the settlement of any um, wow, crash man. right so that means that you lose everything. You probably aren't selling apples on the street, but you're close to it. Uh, and it will. It, he said it would clarify the mind. You wouldn't need federal regulators to look at the books of a bank. The, the, the books would be examined carefully, mm -hmm. usually by not by the top 100 people who are rich enough to lose, the, but by the, 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 the crucial middle management people. They would be regulating that bank every second of every day. Uh, and uh, that's the... You know, that was the, I thought it was a el very elegant solution. Of course, it'll never happen. Like most and and, and it, would it be used great. to be something, it wasn't 99.9%. But in the old days, when Goldman and when Dylan Reed was still around, these all started out as partnerships. The, the big boy, boys right. at the top really did have a large portion of their personal wealth at stake every day in those institutions. Yes, 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 yes. It all used to work, and there, there are reasons why. Well... No one's going to be hurling themselves out of the windows of skyscrapers uh, in this one because they probably work, you know, in suburban office parks, which have maximum height of three stories. Sam Bingman Freed's place in Bahamas probably, you know, he's not <laughs> going to hurl himself off the veranda. And if he does, he'll land in some nice, soft, cushy ferns. Yeah. I'm just waiting for Rob to think that I'm going to go into a spot about something about soft betting or something, but I'm not. Anyway, uh, you so know, I'm 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 operating on my uh, I have the, the 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 info on the phone and I'm on the iPad, so I'm not ahead mm -hmm. of you for, for once, James. I don't know where you're going. Well, we seem to, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I hope not. Anyway, we have dispensed, I think, with that story. And Peter, you can keep us. Uh, you know, yeah. if you find up if 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 you hear some sirens go Depressing. by, because. I don't know. Right. Uh, maybe some Russian mafia figures who were deep into this and are resenting the loss of their money have sent a plane by and a Tom Cruise-like special effect where a guy's going to be deployed on a hook and pluck him from the sidewalk as he walks from one place to the other. Who knows? Wait, before you get going, uh, Peter, do you know, did, um, did, they give, did he give his parents any money? I mean, are they like, oh, whoops, guess we have to give back the, the Ferrari? Uh, here's... I have to be very careful because this, I as know, you may I, well I, imagine, has been all, the, all the buzz here in the neighborhood. <laughs> but um, his parents are both professors, and, uh, highly accomplished yeah. people, as far as I know. No, my only encounter with them is that a couple, his younger brother and one of my kids played Little League together. So I stood watching baseball games with these people. I don't know them. Um, they're professors. And in the arrangement with the court, they have promised a bond. They've put up a bond worth $250 million secured by their own real estate holdings. Good so huh. they have done really well. <laughs> now there are other ways to do well in Silicon Valley. Okay. There are yeah. people on this campus who've invested in this, that, or in the other startup. And But um, they possess great wealth. And Boy, I got to be honest with you. I, uh, the, I can't imagine. Dog walkers want to know why. I can't, I can't imagine a less pleasant place to be right now than sitting around the table as one of Peter Robinson's children as he glowers at them and says, why couldn't you be a crypto billionaire and give exactly. your parents $200 million? 
Like, you know, Peter, I, when you said, and I, and I realize, <laughs> of course, this is, this is due to the context in which you live and understandable, but it used to be when somebody said, well, they're professors. I had a certain image. I had a certain set of expectations. Yes. At, at yes. the very least, I would have. That, that's what I've lived I up to. I would see somebody. Poverty. See, genteel poverty. <laughs> somebody with a vaguely uh, middle European man, perhaps, you know, the, the, the cliched yeah. mustache and the rest of it and the academic matter and a devotion to, to principles and a devotion to truth and a devotion to all of these things. There now when I, now when I hear. Pro- yes, that's what I signed up for. <laughs> right. But now when I hear professor. I, I I immediately think, well, okay, is there some other attribute that I might find notable and laudable? Because that doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Uh, it's taken the same hit as scientist over the last year. I've always admired scientists. Oh, right. I always believed in right. science that these people were devoted to a particular to the empirical search. Right. Not, not anymore. Uh, and I hate that. I really hate the fact that and that these terms have be- become so ab- debased. But on the other hand, the debasement was accomplished by the people who held those terms. And now we have to reconstruct them. Or do we? One of the challenges ahead is to exactly figure out what we're going to do with uh, academia, right? I mean, when we look back at the last year, the last couple of years, we've all we all agree that all of the major institutions have taken a hit, but that's with us. Do you think that they've taken the same sort of hit with the general public? Do you think that our our lack of faith in science and academia, the college, the experience, do you think that that's widespread, or are most people just simply indifferent to it and really don't give it much thought one way or the other? I fear and think it's the latter, probably, except for the sun. Um. Here's the way it looks to fascinating question to which I have oddly enough, although I work in the at a big operation, big university, I haven't given it that much thought. But the way it looks to me is that there are between 20 and 50 institutions in this country sitting on top of such large endowments Mm -hmm. that they are really not accountable to anyone. Right. including their own alumni. Their boards exist in some ways for the sake of the faculty, and it's not even all the faculty, it's the faculty who are running big research labs. But there are over 4,000 colleges and universities in this country, and again, as I counted, it's maybe 50 that are just so rich, they don't have to, they don't have to say boo to anybody. But that leaves almost 4,000 institutions, many of them marvelous local institutions. I read with heartbreak a couple of weeks ago that Casanova College in upstate New York, a wonderful little liberal arts institution near where I grew up, closed. And that's got to be the uh, one of many, many closures why? that we're going to see. Institutions that did that. Sorry, why did mm-hmm. it close? I don't know the details of Casanova. It's been a long time since I lived back there, but they ran out of money and they ran out of students. And even as I I think part of what's going on, as best I can tell, part of what's going on is that uh, even as you've got young males dropping out of the workforce, you've got students, often males, less interested in attending colleges than they used to be. the, the, The smaller institutions are exposed to all of this in a way that these giant institutions sitting on top of enormous endowments are not. Um, so you've got this, this very sharp divide and the little college, the little liberal arts operation, the, 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 tiny the dozens of wonderful institutions in the midwest particularly the upper midwest james mm-hmm. you know you live among mm-hmm. them McAllister and saying all I, as far as i know they're all doing just fine i'm just naming yeah. several off the top of my uh-huh. head but those small local institutions where the name of the game now seems to be you have to be an international operation and there are local institutions that were founded by farmers in relatively small towns in the old days. Eureka, Ronald Reagan's college, was founded by the people, by a church, a particular, the Disciples of Christ, I think, particular denomination, substantially farmers in the local area in Illinois. Those are, those institutions played a, a, an important role in the history of the country, and they're exposed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a friend of mine once explained to me, I mean, recently, just how Princeton University, I think, just because of its the size of its endowment and also the size of its 
it's a smaller university. Princeton has the and biggest ha endowment per student of any institution right. in the country. And it, and it has a smaller operation. So like, you know, you be, be, when you really look at financially, you know, uh, like Yale University, and you look at it as a financial entity, and it really is a gigantic healthcare company because it's a huge hospital research <laughs> thing. And it's really right. the same thing with Harvard. I mean, these are is it, Harvard is really just a, a health a health insurance company. Um, um, that's what it is financially. Right? But Princeton's small enough and has an endowment that's large enough. It is actually effectively a money machine. It, they don't have to take in any money. They don't have to do anything. Their expenses have to stay roughly. To, close to the market, but they could absolutely not raise any money or charge any money and be fine forever. Um, and there's something wrong about that. I mean, I, I you know, I, just to be super, I don't know whether it's the end of the year, so we should be blunt, but I remember, um, you know, we had uh, Larry Arn on our podcast, not that last year, right. now it turns out a long time ago, and he and I went at it about Trump. And I was rolling my eyes at Larry Arn and spent all his time thinking, oh my God, I can't believe it. Larry Arn runs uh, Hillsdale College, and uh, I and I'm saying this as somebody, uh, you know, occasionally Peter, you and I have to, you know, look at hiring somebody or we're like looking at young people, and um, and I have noticed this not just with us, but I've noticed this with other people that it's sort of, kind of hands down, um. Uh, 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 the, the, the Hillsdale graduate applying, the, the recent graduate applying for a job is almost always the one you want to hire. Yes, exactly. You know, they're, they're exactly. smart, they are worldly, they're sophisticated, they're hardworking, they're entrepreneurial, and they're creative. They're, doing, they're all the things you want in a college graduate. And, and, and including well-educated. And so, I mean... And they're you know, not they're, entitled... You don't have no, to no, waste no. two years before they figure out that nobody owes them anything. Wait a minute. They know that. You honestly it's believe that somebody amazing. who came on a horse Wessel High is the same as somebody who came from Yale or Harvard? The rigor. No, the I think they're better. I think they're better. No, I agree. I, I agree with you. The the the, the degree, the degree huh, to which these larger schools just carry with them so much cultural weight is preposterous. It's ridiculous. I the higher and more impressive the organization from which the person comes, the less likely I am to think that they actually know how anything works. If they have this much money and they don't really need to do anything, what's the harm for them for giving into every single little intellectual fad and scientific lysenkoism that comes down the pike? There's none. They're still going to make their money. So why not? Want to be popular and mouth all the new dogmas? I certainly get more popular attention and press that way. I, I mean, I, I think we all assume that in these larger schools that the humanities have been corrupted, right? I mean, yes and no. My daughter just got out of Boston University, and as far as I can tell, the wokeism that we're always hearing about, they're always bemoaning when we see it in this story about college or that, did not affect her 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 education, or she kept it you know, hidden from dad because we're, you know, we're paying the bills. But as far as I can tell, Boston universities still provided a pretty good old fashioned collegiate experience that would not have been unusual or inscrutable to somebody in the, in the eighties or nineties. But yes, we hear of other places yeah. where DEI or die, if you want to put the letters in the right order, uh, it seems to have infected everything. It's, it's like the version of the bad mortgages. You, you just, you have no idea how much of the curriculum has been poisoned by the insertion of these tranches of, of bad ideas. Mm. So what are, I mean, I, I just assume now, I mean, that the, we know exactly what needs to be done in the educational system. We all know it. Everybody, everybody knows it for all of the talk about everybody talking oh they just want to destroy public education that's all they want to do the republicans want to want to don't want to teach history they want everybody to be ignorant about the fact that there was slavery uh so they can all vote republican and be wage slaves no that's not it at all what we look at is a system that does not work now and we want to give the money back to the parents so that the parents can choose something be it a public or a private school how about that that idea i think has a lot of traction all over the country because people are dissatisfied with what public institutions do. The second thing, after we busted up public education and sent everybody to good schools where the disruptors aren't there and the people who want to learn can learn, is that we somehow culturally dethrone the idea that college bestows anything other than the fact that you paid yeah. the money and sat in the place and got the paper. And we bring back the idea that there is a nobility to trades. 
There's absolutely somebody who comes to me with a degree in social sciences that stu- that studied some ridiculous <laughs> little sliver of culture from 200 yeah. years ago and attempts to recontextualize it in the, in, in, the, in the framework of modern fascinations is boring. Somebody comes to me and says, here, what I do, frankly, um, I had to figure out how to turn the water off to the loading dock, and I was looking at the schematics, and it wasn't easy to find, so I kind of had to follow the pipe all the way down from the third floor. That's interesting to me, and that's actually more interesting to me than somebody who's going to tell me about cutlery and its role in gender in 17th century Belgian. (laughs) You know, you have just come up, you you have come up with a test of tests, James. I would trust you to turn off the water main at the loading dock. Rob Long, that is the last job I would ever give. Yeah, I wouldn't trust me either. But you know what I say to somebody? You know what I say to somebody when they come to me? They they say to me, I have a PhD Mm -hmm. in, you know, 17th century cutlery with a look through the lens of gender. Mm -hmm. You know what I say to that person? I'll have a grande latte. Yeah, right. (laughs) That's what I say. But by the way, I had this other thought, like when you said uh, it should be diversity, equity, inclusion, it should be die, diversity, the other Mm -hmm. way around. I think it should be what it is, day, D-E-I, Latin ah, for God. And God. It is yeah. their new religion, uh, right? Yes. So there, yeah. so oh, drop there a little, little philosophical oh. whatnot on you. That's oh. what a Yale a English major, uh, BA in English. <laughs> Somewhere Harold Bloom is magna. saying, nicely done, Mr. Long, nicely done, Mr. Yeah, Long. He said that to everybody. I told you my Harold Bloom story, right? He yes, said it to exactly. everyone. <laughs> but I'm, I'm right, am I not? Uh, but you were correct. Yeah. Tom Sowell, as usual, right. Tom Sowell said said it best. Tom Sowell, who is a graduate of Harvard University, Tom Sowell said, the principal benefit of holding a Harvard degree is that you never again in your life have to feel intimidated by anyone who holds a Harvard degree. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, here's the benefit of having a Yale degree and living in New York City. So you get to join the Yale Club. And in the yes. old days, the Yale Club had two, essentially had two sort of um, great benefits. One was the, what we call a club pour. So when you go to the bar and you order a drink, it's a club pour. Obviously, the whole thing is sort of a you know nonprofit institution that the Yale Club is a nonprofit. So there's no, nobody at the bar manager saying, hey, hey, don't give them that much. And the, all the people who are at the bar at the Yale Club, when they order a, you know, a bourbon on the rocks, they, they, it's a healthy pour. It's it's not a splash on the rocks. It's like it's a triple for everybody else. And the I third, the second, the second reason is because the rooms you could stay there were perfectly nice, very simple, but perfectly nice and super cheap. And I've always used the Yale Club as a kind of a economic indicator because when times are flush, when the market's up, when everybody's feeling rich, nobody stays at the Yale Club. They're going to oh, stay at the same reason, stay someplace fancy. It doesn't matter spend the money when times when people start especially in the financial uh, world start feeling pinched they'll stay at the yale club because it's a perfectly respectable place to stay it's cheap and they'll give you on your because you just charge your membership they'll give you like 90 or 120 days to pay before you start getting like stern letters from the club secretary or whatever um and I, so if you call the yale club and they don't have any rooms and it's full you know that um Times are rough. Times are a bear market. You call the Yale Club and there's plenty of room. You know, hey, it's a bull. That's that's been my uh, that's actually borne up by thirty years of observation. That makes only too much sense. I am, um, <laughs> as you know, I am a sensitive to fluctuations at the Yale Club myself because since the Dartmouth Club burned down, well, let's put it this way: the Yale Club of New York City has served as the temporary home of the Dartmouth Club of New York City since 1923. <laughs> um, that's right. And of course, it's a lovely place, but, uh, but and, and, I mean, it's a perfectly respectable place to stay, but it's not, I wouldn't call it Lutz. So, um, and usually when you, you can kind of tell. All right. Now, here's what I want to know from James Lilacs. James, when you were growing up and your dad ran his operation, his uh, fuel operation in Fargo, how many fancy? How many people with fancy college degrees did you know? Who were the people you most admired? I'm trying to get to what life was like in Fargo when you were a kid, and all of the and the immense amount of practical knowledge 
And, and also, hearing you talk about it over the years, I would say patriotism, simple decency. It was a remarkable place. It was a good place to grow up. The man across the street worked at the bank, Mr. Herman, uh, which at the time we thought with you know, Mr. Drysdale and the rest of it, he's probably very rich. He's got access to all the money. He worked at, he worked at Gate City. And uh, his, he and his wife both went to college. They were very uh, cultured. They went to the cities at least twice a year. They went down to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and saw plays at the Guthrie and stuff like that. So they were wow. right across the street. On the corner, Mr. Johnson ran the pharmacy that's at uh, Northport. So I assume that he had some pharmaceutical training. Uh, three houses down, there's a teacher. So I assume she went to teach. College, which is a different thing, right, but it's still college. Right. Uh, the people next to us uh, played in a rock and roll band and raised dogs. A lot of stuff. Uh, wow. So it was it was all over. On this street were degrees, not degrees, practical trade, and the rest of it, all of which came into it the block that it was because of everybody had that pretty much that salary, same values, same way of living, suburban culture in a North Dakota town, it was, mm -hmm. it was fine. But the idea was by the time that I came along that, well, of course you have to go to college. You know, of course, of, of course you do. Oh, even really? my, yeah, yeah. even, even my cousin, I mean, I had two cousins who grew up in the farm. The older one went to school to become an agronomist and he became a, a brilliant agronomist and he studied and that, that was his way somehow of maintaining the family tradition. His brother stayed behind and ran the farm. He did not go to college. He ran the farm and he ended up a wildly successful businessman who ended up on boards of co-ops and all the sorts of a brilliant guy, but he didn't go to school. And nobody ever thought, how can this guy run this farm with all of its, I mean, it's, it takes a smart mind mm. to run. A, you have to sit down at one point of the yes. year and say, what are my fertilizer futures are going to be? I got to lock in the price now. That's just one thing you have to think about all this stuff. So you take, but the idea that you'd have to go to college to figure that out. No, absolutely not. So, but still when in 1976, when I graduated, the idea was amongst my peers and speech and debate and the rest of it, everybody was going to go to college, but they went to college for a specific thing. They went to college to become a lawyer. They went to college to become a banker or an economist. With the idea that there would be a practical application at the end of it, nobody seemed, with the exception of one or two perhaps, wanted to go to college with the idea that they would then get a job in college. In other words, I'm going to study right. something so efficient right. and rarefied that the only possible employment is in the place that taught me that so that I can then pass it on to. No, everybody wanted to get out in the world and get a job and and do well. It was, you know, we'd all grown up in the 70s, which sucked. And so we wanted to, you know, make a world for ourselves. So that was Fargo at the time. Uh, but, the, but the idea of what a college degree actually meant changed. So the idea, guys, is if, if we all know that most people out there, I think, if push came to shove, would say, I would rather kids attend good schools than public schools, when you phrase it like that. And we should make a push towards helping people get practical degrees in trade schools. These are not losing arguments. These are very popular arguments, I think, especially when you talk about the Yale Club in the way that Rob does. Because, <laughs> because, could you say that with more you, contempt? Because you will alienate 99.7% you, you of the population will be alienated once they learn the existence of this stratification. This, 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 these people oh, wow. up here who are able to... I mean, you just gave us a, a peek in a keyhole into in a door <laughs> to which none of us will ever pass, ever. And I suspect that if there's a Yale club in New York, there might be one elsewhere. There might be such. No, no, a, I know, might, I know, I know. You think it's only one? I mean, the uh -huh, physical club. Uh -huh. Well, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to tell you, Rob, that you probably haven't been told about the existence of the other ones. <laughs> Which tells us there's another level beyond. There's always an inside door, isn't there, James? <coughs> anyway, exactly. that's my that's my that's my. If I had one wish for 2023, it would be that we would have a serious discussion about education and start on the from the cost to the purpose to the right. Because it, it, when I was growing up, and I hate to do the old man get off my lawn stuff, but honest to God, I you know had single mom or not single mom, single women, young single women as teachers. I had old battle axes who'd been there since forever. Uh, I had great teachers. I had a good education. The idea that my would my parents would walk into kindergarten and there would be somebody with multi-hued hair with a bolt through their nose, with an angry <laughs> with, an, with an angry t-shirt on, who was about to teach my child something in contrary to my cultural expectations, because my cultural expectations were retrograde and violent and offensive. That, it's absolutely. I mean, imagine right. everybody walked into kindergarten in 1963, and there's somebody who looks like Trotsky, right? You know, 
and it smells like Trotsky, you know, smoking Volga cigarettes and is about to teach your kids everything that they need to know about Marxism. We wouldn't stand for it. But now, of course, we just sort of assume that that's a uh, part of the course. But you know what? I, I, I would say that I, we should uh, also, because this is a holiday show, we should, we should get on a more cheery note. But I would be thrilled at this point if they were actually teaching Marx in schools. <laughs> Johnny Marks, Johnny Marks, who, no, no, I mean, who did the fine no. soundtrack for, uh, for no, Holly, I mean, Holly Carl Marx, Carl Marx is, it's incredibly complicated prose. It's really hard to understand. You have to know something about history. You have to know something about the references. You, you, you have to, I mean, the, <laughs> I would, I, but my fear is that they're teaching the sort of, you know, the, the graduate school cliff notes version of it, the sort of, uh, the mother Jones magazine version of it. But if they were really going to teach it, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, any kind of any kind of academic rigor at this point um, would be a welcome welcome change. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but you know, look, uh, these are depressing topics for the end of the year. I thought we we're going to be, be more, you know. Oh, I'm having fun. I mean, we can be Pollyanna-ish about it if we want, but we can we we can identify things that need to be done and talk about them and 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 have fun doing so. But if you want to come up with some, let's see, what do you want to talk? You, well, I you know I know Peter just got back from Spain. There's going to be a lot about what Spain. Spain? Yeah, Peter just got back from Spain. Oh, oh hey, hey, hold on. I I would like to know what Rob is, what you're each going to be cooking. And I'm going to grab my son, Andrew Robinson, who's back from Boston and is going to be cooking our Christmas dinner. Let me see if I can find him. You got, you have to leave in a second right now. I'm over, going over to dinner at my sister-in-law's house. So I have no idea. It's goose or something like that. I think that'll be fine. We have to make the salads and the dessert. What are you going to um, make for dessert? Um, well, that's up to my wife again, some sort of tart perhaps. So she and my daughter will be slaving away at the t- today and tomorrow, probably while I'm watching football with the guys, uh, having a proper distribution of, you know, gender duties here. Uh, that's right. they, tried, they made caramel. My, my wife made caramels and she also made walnettos. Oh, now we can't call them walnettos because of course that, that name is legally owned by somebody else. But the, <laughs> well, the, the but, FTC uh, the cops will burst into your Christmas. Dinner no, cross. and if they do, I've got a pretty good reason. I think for calling them as such. My house was built by the man who invented the walnutto. No, oh, there you go. Minneapolis used to be quite the confection center back in the in the tens in the teens. All the Germans, 20s. right? Well, a lot of these guys uh, came over, and it was something to do. You hired guys to stir the pot forever. But the milk, I mean, the Milky Way was invented in Minneapolis. The stuff that you fills your three musketeer was once called the Minneapolis nugget. The in uh, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, they have a old German um, candy maker, and they make the greatest candy ever, Mojesco. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially it's a marshmallow covered in caramel. It doesn't sound amazing. It is in fact amazing. The, 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 um, the, what, the, the history of American okay. candy is just is extraordinary. Every city had their guy. You're right, like the German who came yeah. by. Um, they all disappeared or got absorbed into a conglomerate. Our last remaining big confectioner here, Pearson's, which made the salted nut roll, which is absolutely quintessentially a Minnesota treat, was just purchased by a company out of state, out of country. I believe at least it wasn't China. Um, so, you know, we see that diminish and go, there's a great post on Ricochet, which we actually should, uh, push, right. The whole Ricochet thing about regionalisms. Somebody brought up the sky bar. Did you do, did, do you remember the sky bar, Rob, when you were a kid? Oh yeah. Yeah. S K Y. What was it? Yeah. S K Y B A R. It was, yeah. I think it had five different flavors in one bar and it was a product of Neko. Now, oh, sure. The well, rest of us out in the world never got the good stuff from Neko, like the Bowser or the the Sky Bar. All we got were those poker chips, you know, the Neko wafers. Oh, right. I think there's a headquartered New Haven, Connecticut, actually. Boys, ever, yes. Boys, may I introduce uh, yes. my youngest son, Andrew Robinson, <clears throat> who, forget about your Christmas ham or your Christmas turkey or your Christmas side of beef. Andrew is going to cook. Andrew? All right, well, uh, first of all, Talk to the mic. Please. First of all, thank you for uh, having me on the show. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Uh, I will be cooking uh, paella mixta. Uh, so it will be featuring for protein uh, chicken thighs, um, chorizo. Mm. Um, what else? Um, shrimp, no? Shrimp and mussels, yes. And- oh, so you, you, you chickened out. You know, it's like it's, it's supposed to be rabbit, snails, and chicken. So I guess you have some finicky yeah. eaters over there. 
No, those are just a little hard to source. And what about the special but, rice? There's a special kind of Spanish rice you have to get? Yes, uh, you, and we're going to use short, short grain rice as the special kind of rice. Arborea. Bomba, rice bomba. Arborea. Rice, is pretty, rice is pretty short to begin with. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds, um, it, it sounds delicious. That sounds great. So um, are, you, are, you, are you using a recipe? Whose recipe are you using? Or, or are you just kind of figuring it out? Uh, we have, I'm not, I can't remember. I want to say like New York Times, maybe a recipe. Mm. Here's what I was taught <laughs> by a great, oh, by the way, New York Times cooking is, uh, section is really good. Uh, okay. Here's what I was taught by a, a great Spanish chef is that the trick is you want to keep stirring the rice uh, before you assemble it, before you let it, you know, crust in the bottom to get all that socorot, the, the crispy rice mm -hmm. inside the paella too. So it's not just on the bottom, but it's all the way through. That is a okay. that is a, a technique they stole from the uh, Arab uh, conquerors um, for the Reconquista, um, because that was the way that was a very famous way to for Persians actually to make rice. Yeah, oh, there you so go, we, little rice. So, so we got a we got a white guy from the East Coast in Texas talking about a Spanish chef who had a secret that he got from the Arab oppressors of his country who themselves yeah. had extracted it from the Persians. Now, we can, like we can either say that nobody here has the right to talk about any of this because it's all cultural appropriation up and down and backwards and forwards. Yeah. Or we can say this is the glorious pie, this is the glorious melange, the glorious ratatouille of world culture in which one <laughs> informs the others. And we all learn and we come up with great dishes at the end of the result. I'm inclined to think it's the latter. But when you say New York Times recipe, that's where we sort of wince a little bit because if the person saying these things does not come specifically from the culture of which which they are talking about, there can be problems. Well, there Andrew's can... half Cuban, so... Yeah. Oh, good. So we don't have to worry that you're going to have... You, you don't have to decolonize the kitchen. Your kitchen comes pre-50% <laughs> decolonized. Yeah, exactly. Good. Rob, or you... Have, you're... Or 50% or or heavily colonized. That's true. That's depending on how you look at the... Depending on what part of Havana you're from. <laughs> Rob, before we leave, because uh, Peter has to run off and we have to get out of here. And uh, yep, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry sir. Christmas. Andrew. Thank you. Nice to see you, Andrew. Me. Merry Christmas. Good nice luck to today. Uh, good luck on the pay. Yeah. Your, uh, your Christmas dish is, and you're going to be in Texas, I, I assume. So, Well, I don't know. Good, yeah, we had a, we goods, had a, goods I, pecan pie? Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I, I hunted on my, my sister-in-law's made pies. And so um, I think I'm going to, I don't know yet. I flew in last night and um, we sort of had brief discussions over whatever dinner. Um, I got a little work to do today, but I'm going to probably go out to the market later and see what's up and what's good. It's only the, it's only the immediate family at, at, at for Christmas dinner this year. And so um, it's going to be, we have like a lot of like huge family stuff coming up. So, uh, you know, we're only here for a few days uh, and then Christmas and then a day after that. And then we go back, all of us go back East for a wedding we all have to go to so it's going to be a lot of travel really? wow. um yeah um so you know we, my ordinary my ordinary thing would be i just get a giant standing rib roast and just cook that mm -hmm. all day all morning low and slow and then it's delicious but then and then have leftovers but then we're all leaving soon so that's probably a bad idea so i don't really know you know what my actual um hope is i'm gonna make also buco i feel like i have six people to feed also, buco is a really kind of a nice, hearty, slightly different, non-traditional dish. But, but I have to go to the market and see. Either that or like lamb, some kind of rack of lamb. Because it's like six people. It's easy like to it. do a, a couple racks, you know. That's how you end up with more traditions the next year. You keep accreting these things. You keep adding. You Wait a minute. Right. You know what? You know what we're doing this year to Christmas? <clears throat> we're disrupting it. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna go right now. I'm gonna bake some imaginary money. I'm gonna put those in little bags and I'm gonna give them to everybody and say, uh, here's, here's my, new, here's my new token. Listen, guys, it's been, a, it's been a fantastic year. I assume, unless the Eddie tells us otherwise, that we are off next week, uh, so that everybody can, can, you know, do what they need to do. I like the fact that my calendar says that Christmas is on the 25th, but also for the 26th, it says Christmas Day observed. I, 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 I love yeah. that. Uh, as, as though we're, we're sort of judging, watching it from a distance through binoculars. <laughs> Mine says Christmas Day substitute. Isn't that substitute? Weird? I guess it's because you get Christmas off, and if it's right. a Sunday, we don't. It's like how, if your birthday's on a, on a Christmas, you don't. 
You can't say, okay, my birthday is now the next day. That's when it's observed. So that you get right. an extra present. But <laughs> Christmas day is like, you got that off, but I still want a day off. So this is the next day. But if you are religiously faithful, are you not observant? So, I mean, you could say, when are you celebrating Christmas? Well, we're observant, so the 25th. How about you? Well, we're not, so we're observing it on the 26th. Okay, got it, fine, whatever. Um, but we're going to be with you the first week of January. And uh, just, a, just a reminder, nothing will have changed. New Year, all of those things, resolutions, new start, nothing will have changed. We'll It'll still all be, be different. We'll, we'll all be ourselves as we were minutes before the clock striked and the calendar changed. Um, but Peter, Merry Christmas. Rob, Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. To everybody and to in Ricochet too. and everybody who's listening and everybody who's joined the site in the last year, everybody who's thought about wanted to, come on, come on, come all. It's there for you because we can't wait to see you in Ricochet 2023 as well. So Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll see you in a fortnight at Ricochet 4.0. As I do each year, I'm setting up Rob. And so, as Tiny Tim observed. <laughs> Please join Ricochet. <laughs> Ricochet.com. We need you. We, if, if you want to give us a present and you're not a member, this is a great present to give. We absolutely That's do need not you. That's so that, so that 2023 is not a sad year. Uh, and so instead, it's a year. It's not how you do it. Do it with the Dickens style. Do it with a ghost of Christmas future. If you don't join, Tiny Tim dies. Right. <laughs> These are the chains we forged in life. It's gonna be uh, an empty little, empty little crutch in the corner yeah. if you don't join, and it's gonna be on you. You Scrooge that and half. A, That's actually very. That's a very good point, James. Okay. Think of Ricochet as Tiny Tim. And think if you've ever wanted to join Ricochet and you haven't, you've been putting it off, you are Scrooge. We are the three ghosts. We have visited you. <laughs> We're telling you, please don't let Tiny Tim die. You know what to do. Uh, wake up the next morning, raise the shade, call down to the boy down the street and say, boy, boy, can I still join Ricochet? Well, you mean that, that center right discussion <laughs> podcasting company? Why, that's the very one. Why, certainly, sir. Go to ricochet.com. That is what, that would be the only Christmas carol I want to hear this year. Throw open the sash, throw a sovereign out the window, and then find your nephew and do a jig. That's absolutely yeah, perfect. Exactly right. And I'm sure, of course, you know, uh, EJ is relieved that you've just finally given him some <laughs> art here with the three of us. I don't know which ghost I'm going to be, uh, but being the, the most slight of the group, I think I'll probably end up as the one that Joel Gray played in the, uh, was it the Patrick Stewart version or something like that? I don't know. It all depends. As long as we're not Muppets. I'm sorry. These people who say that the Muppet Christmas is fine. It's fine. But it, 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 there's one answer to which is the best of the Christmas carols, right? And it, and it, it is what? Rob? The best of the Christmas. Uh, oh, oh, oh! I'm sorry. For another actual Christmas carols, uh, it's the first one. It's the it's the the first scary one with Alec Guinness, right? No, no. Who, who no, plays? No, you're thinking Oliver. You're, he played Fagin. In oh Oliver, yeah, yeah, no? Fagin, right? It wasn't the first Fagin one because so. they were they were making that back in. The, they made one in the 30s. I think you're talking about the one 51 British black and white Alistair yeah, Sims. Exactly. Alistair Sims. Alistair, ah, exactly. That's, that's, that's a great one. That's the that's one. Great. That's the only one that there is. Ah, it's a good, very good. peculiar one. It's a very peculiar musical one. Uh, with uh, Leslie, written by Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley, starring uh, Albert Finney, mm -hmm. which is very, uh, very weird. Although it has one or two really good songs in it, but it's uh, very weird. Very well, they weird. all have their charms, but the only one that's the most British and the most heartfelt yeah. is that one. Good, we've given everybody something to argue about in the comments, as if there isn't already. Gotta go, Peter, Rob, everybody. Okay. And, Merry and if I have to do this yeah. myself, I will. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Bye-bye, boys. Everyone. Bye -bye. Merry Christmas. Bye -bye. Merry Christmas.
Join the conversation. <laughs> 